on, New York Rangers fans, and welcome to episode 134 of the new Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercogliano of the USA Today Network. I have a lift ride picking me up in just about an hour and a half to head to Vegas. We are embarking on what amounts to, I think, the second longest road trip of the season for the Rangers, a four-game swing on the West Coast, beginning in Las Vegas, and then moving on to California, L.A., Anaheim, and then finishing in San Jose. So it's going to be a very busy week for yours truly, a very busy week for the Rangers, four games in a span of six nights. So juggling a lot of stuff right now, and that's why we are going to get right to it. We have Cam Robinson on the show this week, the content director of Elite Prospects, one of my favorite guys to talk prospects with. And I reached out to him last week to try to set up the interview because, as many of you are well aware of, the Rangers had a few prospects who participated in the 2024 World Junior Championships, including Gabe Perot and Drew Fortescue, their top two draft picks from this previous draft, who won gold for Team USA, and Cam was there in Sweden for the entire tournament, knows these prospects inside and out, and so we're going to have him on the show as this week's guest to talk some World Juniors and to size up the Rangers prospects who participated in that tournament. Fun conversation with him, so we'll get to that one in just a little bit, but let's start with what's going on in the NHL with The Rangers, who have steadied a bit now, the panic has calmed down just a little bit now that they've won two games in a row after that season-long four-game losing streak, which pretty much I think is fair to say was the low point of the season for the Rangers so far. They were really in a rut for those four games defensively. It just seemed like every mistake they made was coming back to bite them in that spam After earlier in the season where it felt like the Rangers were finding all of these different ways to win for a stretch there, it felt like they were finding all these different ways to lose. And what it amounted to was not just that four game losing streak, but over the course of, as we talked about last week, over a month now where the Rangers were basically playing 500 hockey. At one point, they had played 18 games in their past 18 games during that losing streak and only won eight of them. So it was a rough stretch that extended for really a while. And there were some ups and downs within that for sure. We talked a lot last week about the inconsistencies where they would have a good game or a couple good games, but then they would falter. And that a lot of those trends and tendencies that had been issues for the Rangers in the past were now sort of coming back to haunt them again, specifically defense and defending against the rush. I still don't feel like, even though they've won these past two games, that they're on top of their game. These haven't been the sharpest games or the most complete games that we've seen from the Rangers all season. But the bottom line is they needed some wins to stop the bleeding. And they got that beginning Sunday against the Washington Capitals. And then again, Tuesday night at Madison Square Garden against the Seattle Kraken. Now, The final score of that win over the Kraken was 5-2, to but that game was not as lopsided as the final score might make it appear. The Rangers were actually outshot and outchanced in that game, especially when you look at the 5-on-5 numbers. But 
the reasons that they won that game, I think, were a couple of the things that we've been looking for. Now, obviously, we've talked about defense, but beyond that, some of the concerns that we've had with the Rangers recently is A, Igor Shesterkin not looking like himself. At a low point, his save percentage last week or even a few days ago had dropped down to 901. Now, this is a guy who's 920 something for his career had a 9.35 save percentage that year that he won the Vesna Trophy. Usually, almost always, one of the best in the NHL in that category. Statistically, when you look at the analytics and all that kind of stuff, ranks near the top, if not at the top, for a large portion of the time that he's been with the Rangers, which is five seasons now. For the first time ever, if you look at goals saved above average, Igor had dipped into the negatives, which was really striking when I looked that up while I was working on my mid-season report last week. And again, his save percentage had dipped all the way down to 901. He was hovering right around 900, which is, I mean, that's not even a great number for a backup. Now, there's a lot of factors, and obviously the defense is one of them. And every time we've talked to Peter Laviolette about that, he has made sure to point out that he thinks that the defense in front of Igor has been letting him down. And that's why his numbers aren't where you would expect them to be. But, What we've seen now for the last two starts, these last two wins for Igor, is that he looks like he's getting back on track. He was was good, I thought, in that win over Washington on Sunday. Didn't get tested a whole lot. I thought the defense was pretty solid in front of him for that game. But then you look at the Seattle game. And again, Seattle, I think, over the course of that game, probably had a slight advantage in the quality of their scoring chances, especially a stretch in the first half or so of the second period when it was an onslaught. It was wave after wave from the Kraken. In the first 12 minutes of that period, Igor faced 14 shots on goal. He stopped every single one of them. So he came up huge. At that point, the score was 2-1. to one. The Rangers were hanging on to a one-goal lead. That could have been turned on its head at any moment. We talked last week about Igor when he's on top of his game having the ability to completely change not just the momentum but the outcome of the game because when you're holding on to a one-goal lead and the other team is coming at you in that fashion, if all of a sudden you give up that lead, that's a deflating thing for the entire team and that can change the trajectory of the game. Well, for this stretch in the second period against the Kraken, Igor did everything that they needed him to do. He held down the fort and then eventually later on in that period, the Rangers sort of regroup. They get a couple goals, they pad the lead, and now all of a sudden, where we could have been looking at a tie game or even the Rangers losing the lead completely, now all of a sudden it's 4-1 to Rangers and they're in the driver's seat going into the third period. So Igor in that second period, I thought, was huge, and and that is a huge positive for the Rangers to come out of, not just this game, but, but the last game as well. He is gathering himself Right now, he is looking more like the Igor that we're used to seeing. And I think he was one of the biggest reasons that the Rangers have won each of the last two games. And then the other thing more specific to the Seattle game was the secondary scoring. And I've heard from a lot of fans, and I think it's a legitimate concern or had been a legitimate concern. Now, one game doesn't all of a sudden wash it all away. But for one night, at least, the scoring that came from beyond either the power play or the Panarin-Trocek-Lafreniere line. Those have really been the only consistent sources of offense for this team all season. And I think increasingly so, 
it's been evident, especially during this month or so where the Rangers haven't been winning at a great clip, that they're going to need other guys to step up. They're going to specifically need other lines to step up and contribute some scoring, bring more balance to this lineup, or else it just makes the Rangers a little too predictable, a little too easy to defend. And we had seen their goals during that four-game losing streak kind of drop down. It seemed like they weren't generating quite as much quality as they had been for a little stretch before that. But then Tuesday night, you get all kinds of contributions. Now, Panarin and Trocek connected on the first goal on the power play. Beautiful pass from Panarin to set up Trocek at the far post in that situation. Every other goal, the other four goals the Rangers scored in that game came from other sources. And that was really important in my mind. That might have been the biggest takeaway for me from that game. You had Blake Wheeler, who has taken a lot of heat from the fan base in the last few weeks. He comes through with a couple goals. Now, you know, one of them's an empty netter. One of them's a tip. They weren't the prettiest goals. It wasn't like he was making these ridiculous skill plays to score. But still, for him to get on the score sheet after seven straight games without a point, I thought was important. You had Eric Gustafson, who has been a really nice find for this team this year. But I knew it had been a while. I went and added up the games right after he scored. He had not had a goal in 31 games prior to scoring on Tuesday. So he gets off the schneid a bit there. And then I think perhaps most importantly, you have that top line, which, oh, by the way, has Capo Caco back on it. We're going to talk a little bit about that more in the show. But that line, I thought, was the Rangers' best line, even better than the Panarin line against Seattle. Mika Zabanajad was a force in that game. One of the best games I think I remember him playing at least in a matter of weeks, probably all season. He, he gets two points in the game, but it wasn't just the points. It was the way, as Laviolette put it, that he was pushing things. He was forcing the play. He was really using his speed down the middle of the ice. And that pass that he made on Kako's goal that made it 4-1 to one was just beautiful. The way that he pressed with his speed and then is able to get the puck to the backhand, draw some defenders, and then weave it through some traffic to set up Kako with a really great look in the slot off the rush. So Miko was a driving force in that game. And, and obviously getting that line going is huge for the Rangers. We're going to talk about the bottom six. We're going to talk about some of the other concerns. But ultimately, the Rangers, the way that they're set up with Panarin on one line and Zabanajad on another, they're set up to have two very dynamic lines. And for the most part this season, it's only been one. So they need that other line to get going. And I thought that they took some positive steps in that direction on Tuesday. So all of that, even though the Rangers, I think, defensively made some mistakes, I thought Seattle came at them hard in certain situations, especially in the second period, even though it wasn't the cleanest game the Rangers have played all season, they win because the goalie does what he is expected to do and has a really good game. And you get some really important secondary scoring that has been lacking a lot of the season otherwise. Now, I encourage everybody, if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, because I, I put a lot of work into it, not just diving into stats, but just really thinking about every aspect of this team. I wrote that went up on our website, loha.com slash sports slash Rangers, as well as all the other USA Today properties, our Rangers midseason report. And within that midseason report, I had the primary concern based on the first half of the season 
as defending against the rush, which we've talked about a whole bunch. So I'm not going to rehash a lot of that here. I think while we're talking about the secondary scoring and we're talking about Igor, both really important things that definitely are concerns that we feel like based on what we saw in the first half need to get better. Moving forward, the defense has been the main thing, and that's certainly what we've heard a lot of the players and Peter Laviolette talk about a lot, especially during that four-game losing streak. I did think that over the weekend, those two games against Washington, even though they lost on Saturday, they definitely tightened up defensively. It didn't seem like there were quite as many rush opportunities against them. It didn't seem like the Capitals had a whole ton of possession or a a lot of really high-quality scoring chances. Now, on the other side of things, the Rangers didn't generate a whole lot of offense in that game. And then you turn to Tuesday, and it's a little more of, okay, they're pushing more offensively, they're generating more offensively, but they're also allowing more defensively. So again, these games weren't perfect. To me, there's still this need to find that balance where they're playing that tight, disciplined, patient, defensive game that brought them so much success earlier in the season, but they're still finding more ways to push for offense without sacrificing the defense. That is really, I think, the crossroads that this team is at right now. They packed it in a bit against Washington in those two games over the weekend. They end up splitting the two games. They definitely did not have as many breakdowns defensively or as many turnovers that led to odd man rushes. So those were positives, but it felt like they weren't getting enough push offensively in those games. So now you see them get some more offense going against Seattle. You see the goalie step up to cover up for maybe some of those defensive breakdowns. But I still, I feel like the ultimate goal for this team is to get to the point where you're getting both things clicking at the same time. And that is still not the case. This team is still, I think, in a place where they're searching to get back to that really, really feel-good mood and overall game that we saw them playing earlier in the season. Within that mid-season report, we went through a lot of different things. Team MVP, obviously, Artemi Panarin at this point. I think it's hard to dispute that. Most improved player, Alexi Lafreniere, who broke an eight-game goal drought by scoring against Washington over the weekend. And to me, you watch this guy play. I mean, he is getting himself into scoring positions so much. I was actually a little surprised. I mean, I had a feeling he'd be up there, but when I went on to natural stat trick to look up individual high danger scoring chances, he leads the team at five on five right now, Lafreniere. So he's getting himself into these scoring positions. He just looks so much more assertive and confident to me this season. So in my mind, he was kind of a no brainer for that most improved category. The next step, as he's talked about a bit recently is just needing to finish more. And now you hope with that goal sort of ending that dry spell that he was in, that that maybe he's going to work his way toward that. But the other concerns that we talked about, the defense, the defending against the rush, the goaltending, which we just touched on, Igor a bunch, and then the forward depth, improving the forward depth, improving the secondary scoring. Well, I mentioned earlier a huge feather in the Rangers cap right now is that they got Capo Caco back into the lineup, returned for that Sunday game against Washington. And that's kind of where I want to go from here to talk about the ripple effects of getting Caco back and how much really the Rangers needed to get healthy to give themselves a better chance of getting back on track and give themselves a better chance of balancing 
this lineup a little more because in that period when they were losing, I think it became even more glaring how depleted this forward group looked and how limited their options were as far as how to rearrange lines or how to set up lines to, to generate offense up and down. It just felt like they had kind of hit a wall in that regard. So Kako's return could not have come at a better time for this team. And interestingly, you look at the way that LaViolette threw him back into the lineup. I think the urgency was there clearly was increased because of that losing streak to where initially we had talked about maybe they ease Kako back in. Maybe they start him on the third line and give him at least a few games to sort of work his way back into game shape and earn his way back into that top line. But no, right off the bat, warm-up rushes. We find out he's going to play Sunday, and he's right up there on that top line with Kreider and Zabanajad. And clearly, we talked about this last week, that is, I think, the way that the Rangers need to go, at least until the trade deadline. I said this, I think, at the end of the episode last week, that I believe the Rangers need to now lock in their top six for the foreseeable future, at least until they make some kind of a trade, at least until they make some kind of move prior to the deadline. I believe that Kako is the best internal option to play with Kreider and Zabanajad. And I found it interesting that we talked about the analytics and how the underlying numbers weren't matching up with the actual production. And that is exactly when we asked LaViolette the other day why he chose to put Kako up there right away, what he pointed to. He said, listen, the possession was there. The scoring chances was there. The defense was there. The one thing that wasn't there was the actual production, putting the puck in the back of the net. As we know, those three played 11 games together to start the season. And in those 11 games, they were only on ice together for two goals that the Rangers scored. So that was the next step. And when we spoke to Capo Kako, the day after he came back, had a nice chat with him Tuesday morning before the game. I pointed this out to him as well, and I found this answer really telling. And you can go and read more. That, that story is up on the websites as well. I said to him, you know, the analytics look good. It looks like the possession, the scoring chances, et cetera, like all that stuff is there. And he looked at me and he goes, I didn't like those games at all. Basically told me that the analytics didn't mean anything to him because they weren't scoring. And he knew that for him to really firmly establish himself as a top line or top six right winger on this team, it's not just about having good analytics. The production has to be there. And so that told me that this guy is is very motivated to show that he can produce in that spot. And it also showed me that that lack of production, that lack of scoring, having only three points in 20 games to begin the season, that ate at him during these 21 games that he missed with that injury. So it felt like, okay, he, he's got his mind focused in the right place. He knows that it's got to be tangible results for this line to prove that he can really stick there, especially with some of these trade deadline decisions coming up. And then they go out on Tuesday night, and I mentioned that line had only been on ice for two goals for the Rangers in those first 11 games. Well, they were on for two goals in the first two periods against the Seattle Kraken on Tuesday. And the second goal that they get, I mentioned that nice play from Mika to Kako. That line, again, to me, was the best line for the Rangers on Tuesday night. And so 
now you feel like, okay, the Rangers have something to work with here. The top six is starting to feel whole again. There's still a lot to prove for that line. Don't get me wrong. And especially a lot to prove for Kako, but certainly a step in the direction on Tuesday. And I think a wise move from LaViolette to say, you know what? We're not going to play games with this. We're not going to tiptoe around this. Kako is the guy who, for us to be the best possible team that we can be, needs to seize this role. And so we're going to throw him right into the fire there. We're going to let him roll with this opportunity. I do not think you're going to see that line broken up for, I think, at least a number of weeks, a month plus. The trade deadline is still, what are we looking at, a month and a half away now. So I think that the wise thing for the Rangers to do, and it looks like Laviolette sees it the same way, is to let them roll and see what they can build there. What kind of momentum can they build? What can they establish as their identity for that line? And again, Mika playing the way that he did on Tuesday, I think is going to be very beneficial for that line as well. Now, the bottom six still feels a little out of sorts to me, although I, I must say Tuesday was much better for the third line. Laviolette made the decision to move Johnny Brodzinski up onto that third line where he was playing in between Will Cooley and Blake Wheeler. And the idea was that Nick Benito had basically been a black hole offensively. Now, we know he brings some valuable things. I wrote about this in the midseason report. Guy, I think, last I checked, leads the league in blocked shots, a solid penalty killer, a solid guy in the faceoff circle, a responsible defensive forward. But he is not a offensive dynamo by any stretch of the imagination. And that third line had been so unproductive, such a black hole offensively in recent weeks that they needed to try something different. Now, they don't have, as we've talked about, a lot of great center options in the organization right now outside of Philip Hedel returning, and he remains back home in Czechia. So no real big update for you guys on that one. So for lack of a better option, I thought it made some sense to give Brodzinski a chance there because Brodzinski, even though he has certainly not proven it in the NHL to this point, in the AHL, he's been one of, obviously was the top scorer in that league at the time that he was called up earlier this season. And I thought that he had a really solid game Tuesday night. The goal scoring play where Wheeler gets that tip in front of the net, that play was all Brodzinski who set that up. There was a foot race to a puck, a loose puck that was going behind the Seattle net right prior to that possession. And it was Brodzinski who beat the Kraken defender to get that puck. He really showed off the speed in that situation. As, as Wheeler said after the game, Brodzinski created that possession. And so then that line's out there. And now all of a sudden they're able to buzz around the offensive zone a bit. And Brodzinski was playing high to low. He, he, he makes a pass and he goes low behind the net, receives another pass, gives it back up to Braden Schneider and then gets himself in position where he finds a shooting lane. And that led to the Wheeler tip. So Brodzinski, I thought, had his best game in recent memory. This is a guy who for 10 straight games had not had a point. And with Tyler Pitlick now, on the verge of returning, I believe he will start playing at some point during this West Coast trip. He was cleared for full contact this past week and practiced in full with the team on Monday or Tuesday. Tuesday, I should say. It was Tuesday. So Pitlick is right there. It looks like he's an option for the Rangers pretty much any game now. And Brodzinski is one of those guys who is at risk of maybe losing 
his spot. So I thought he had a really good game and accounted for himself well and maybe gave Laviolette a little something to think about because that third line, it was the best game they had played in a while. Meanwhile, Benito gets moved down to the fourth line with Goudreau and VC, and I thought that line in some ways was a little less effective than they had been when Pitlick was in there or even for that short stretch when Will Cooley was in there. So that's some food for thought as well here. I know Benito is a guy that, LaViolette thinks really highly of a really well-respected guy in the locker room, a guy who has had a really good career considering maybe some of the limitations in his game. But at this stage, 35 years old, and especially when I was looking at the midseason report numbers and crunching some of the analytics, he ranks out as the Rangers' worst forward in a lot of analytical categories. So there might be an argument if Brodzinski has a couple more good games in that third line spot and especially if that third line is able to continue to contribute a little offensively, which they weren't doing for a number of weeks prior, well, then maybe that's a little food for thought because if you want to get Pitlick in, maybe Benino becomes a guy that you have to consider or at least discuss taking out. Now, you could also leave Pitlick as the healthy scratch. It doesn't have to be an automatic for him to come into the lineup. But again, I think if you go and compare the numbers for that fourth line when Pitlick is on it versus when Benino is on it, it was more effective with Pitlick. So this is all food for thought. But ultimately, as we've talked about, I still think, number one, you'd love to have Heedle back. And number two, the Rangers are going to need to make a trade to really make this lineup feel as deep and balanced as you would like it to feel if you're going to be considered a true Stanley Cup contender. But this is the state where they're in right now. And again, the bottom six just still feels a little bit off to me, even though they had that encouraging game on Tuesday. All right. With that, we are going to kick it to our interview with Cam Robinson. And then following that interview, as promised, I will be back to answer this week's set of Twitter questions. But first, let's get to Cam. Now let's welcome back into the show. It's been a while, but certainly one of our favorite guests to chat about prospects with, and that would be Cam Robinson. He is the content director and director of film scouting for Elite Prospects, and he is pretty freshly back from Sweden where he covered the World Juniors. So, Cam, thank you for joining us. I know it's been a crazy, hectic couple weeks for you, but hopefully you're you're settling in now, and, and I hope you had a great time in Sweden. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Um, Sweden was, yeah, definitely a, a fun experience and, and dealing with the jet lag going there and then the jet lag coming back has also been uh, fun to handle with with kids at home and, and work mm-hmm. and school and everything. But uh, I think we're all settled back in now and gearing up for the second half of the season. So I, I obviously want to ask you about the Rangers prospects, especially a couple guys for Team USA who ended up taking home gold. But just the the tournament itself, Team USA coming away with the gold. I mean, were you, did you look at them as a favorite going in? I, I mean, obviously, a lot of people talked about Canada and the way that they went out. I know that was a big storyline. But when you assess kind of the tournament as, as a whole, were there any big surprises for you? Were there any huge takeaways that were kind of foremost on your mind when you came home? Um, I mean, coming into the event, when they released the rosters, you know, I kind of, Eyed up Sweden and the U.S. as being kind of the top two clubs, just on paper, anyways. The talent, the experience, the depth in their lineups, uh, in goal as well. Um, those two looked like they were going to be on a collision course for the gold medal game, and and as we saw, that's that's exactly what happened. And then the Americans, they just 
they were better. They wanted it more. They, you know, they were more physical. They got to pucks quicker. Um, their skill level really, really showed out there. Um, and, and the Swedes couldn't really compete at that point. And it's really fun because that age group, those two teams, they have a lot of history, right? So a couple of years earlier, the, the Swedes took the U18 gold medal and uh and I think they were outshot like 55 to 15 by the US that game and and so Cutter Gauthier gave that great quote after uh, the semifinal where he's like they stripped the gold medal off our necks and we didn't forget so they're they were ready <laughs> they were they were ready and and so you know the home crowd was booing the Americans the whole game and and that just almost fueled the fire for them um so I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I was really shocked by anything that happened at that event obviously Canada getting ousted in the way they did in the quarters but that team, you know, on paper, they were they were susceptible to getting bounced early. And, and that's exactly what happened. They just never really gelled as a unit. And, and you know, their structure wasn't there. Their their play driving wasn't there. And the personnel, obviously, losing, you know, five or six guys that are still playing in the NHL is going to hurt at a U-20 event. But, uh, but yeah, we we're just lucky that that Sweden didn't get knocked out in, in the quarters, too, because that would have really kind of sent the whole tournament on its ear and, and lost kind of the home crowd, too. So, Getting uh, getting to see those two teams play in the final, and it was uh, it was a great tournament overall, and, and lots of notes and takeaways come from it. Yeah, it's interesting because I've seen and and heard the conversation about well, Canada has these big time players, obviously Connor Bedard and others who are not participating in the tournament, so their top top guys in that age group are not there. Whereas it seemed like a country like the U.S. pretty much had all their all their big guns. So you know, if all things were equal. You know, I, I'd be curious how the matchup would look. I'd be curious for your thoughts on that. And I'm also curious for your thoughts on the depth of Team USA and maybe the talent that's coming out of the, the U.S. right now and maybe where it stands up to years past. I mean, do you feel like it's on an upswing right now or do you feel like it's been a, a pretty steady, strong group for a while now? Yeah, so uh, just uh, regarding the first question there, if, if if it was a true best on best for the U-20s, you know, so so Canada would have Bedard and Fantilli and Shane Wright and Zach Benson and Kevin Korczynski, obviously that would make a massive difference. And just having Bedard, the guy probably would have scored 15 goals or something like that in seven games. So him alone. But the Americans, you know, they didn't have Logan Cooley, who clearly would have been their best player at this event too. Um, but I, I think, you know, Canada probably walks away with that, even if they have a, you know, even if I was in net for them, just getting in the way of shots, they probably still <laughs> would have managed to outscore their way to a gold medal. Um, but, you know, considering the Americans, like this team, especially, you know, their depth was very, very impressive, right? Like they they had, they had Ziv um, Buyam there on the, on the blue line who had a great event, but he was their only draft eligible. Basically, everybody else on their roster, minus their third goaltender, is already, you know, owned by an NHL team. Like they had a lot of experience and a lot of high-end players. Like when you can roll out like you know, Ryan Leonard and Will Smith and Gabe Perot is basically your third line for much of the tournament. Like that's that's pretty juicy, right? Like those guys are gonna be front and center next year playing 20 plus minutes a night as they go for the repeat. Um, so that alone is 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 wildly impressive. Um, you know, in net they had two really viable options there with Augustine and Fowler. Like they, they was deep all over the place up front and on the blue line and, and in net. So, so they're, they're a great team and they can bring back so many players next year too. So, so they're going to be a, a force next year as well. And then in USA hockey in general, you know, it, it seems like they're producing high level players all over the place. Uh, and it's because they are, you know, they've fully caught up to the Canadians, I think in their, in their development, of high-end players in the U.S. national team development program plays a huge role in that, having those kids enter that program and then staying together, moving up. And as we see with, you know, those kids I mentioned there, Pro and, and Leonard and Smith, often they'll stick together and go to the NCAA and, and continue to play together and build those bonds. And 
and those relationships. And and it's you know the USHL is a stronger league right now. Team there are players out west, even in Canada, are choosing to go play in the USHL because that's a quicker stepping stone than, than playing junior A here in Canada to get to the NCAA. A lot of players are, are are preferring to go the college route, which I love. You know, my son plays hockey, and and I've told him from day one, like, yeah, you're going to college <laughs> if you're good enough that that's the route because you want to have a fallback right go get yourself a degree and, and go to school and have some fun too so i think that the way that they can market their system to players has really benefited them but also just skill development like they've they have more players that are signing up at a at youth level and that's just building that pool up right when you got 300 million people you can you can really find some talent if you can get them in at a young age and that's what the americans have been focusing on basically since you know 1980 um and so now we're, we're really seeing the fruits of that labor come through Speaking of skill development, and, and you mentioned one of the names, one of the prospects there that I wanted to ask you about. We'll start with Gabe Perot because I think in the opinion of a lot of people, he is the top prospect in the Rangers organization right now and obviously had a really good tournament. I think he was tied for second on Team USA in scoring 10 points for him in the tournament, including three points in the gold medal game. Seemed like, I mean, just to me from watching, seemed to me like, he was making plays in a lot of different areas of the ice. I was impressed with how he was getting to the net front. Like, I didn't know that he really had that in his repertoire. We know how highly skilled he is. We know that he broke the the development program's single-season scoring record last year, so the production has been really high, and that's continued now at BC, where I think he's up to, like, 30 points in 19 games at this point. So, Perot, wh- where do you stand on him? A, a lot of people that I've talked to feel like the spot where the Rangers got him in the draft at 23rd overall could end up looking like a steal. And the way that he's producing right now, it's hard to argue. So, so where do you stand on Perot and what impresses you the most about him? Yeah, he's a, he's a really unique player because he's just so intelligent. Like he's extremely aware on the ice and he, he understands his limitations and he understands where he can gain advantages on the ice and he maximizes it basically. And so he's not the fastest skater. And, and that's, you know, what held him back in his draft year is that the feet weren't great, you know, in a straight line, he can get from point A to point B fairly quickly. Um, but that kind of shifty dynamic edge work east to west, you know, being explosive from a standstill, those things were a little sluggish. And so that was kind of the difference between him being a top five pick like Will Smith and falling all, all the way to the Rangers. Um, at 23 and they can thank the the wild for for kind of jumping over their list that bill Guerin, you know told us right after the draft that they jumped over perot to take charlie strammel so that was a nice gift from the wild to the rangers um his his play at the world juniors pros i was wildly impressed uh I think the feet have gotten better. Like you mentioned, you know, he's not afraid to go into hard areas. Like he's got a little bit of jam to his game and he'll take some punishment in order to to make a play. Um, you know, his playmaking skills are just so high end. Like I'm pretty sure he led the tournament in like primary, uh, you know, expected assists per 60. Um, you know, his slot passes were, you know, through the roof, probably led the Americans as well there. Um, he just creates advantages all over the ice, which is what's really, really impressive. Now, he's not the most gifted defensive player, um, but that's not what you're going to pay him to do. If he can if he can just keep his head above water, then that's fine because you're going to pay him to, to set up goals for other people. Um, I would have liked to see him shoot the puck a little bit more. You know, that's probably nitpicking um, because his game is predicated on getting the puck to Ryan Leonard or to Will Smith and they can they can finish. And you know, he's got a wicked shot. Like he scored over 50 goals last year for the program. So he can shoot it. So I'd like to see him do that a little bit more in that event. But um, no, he was he was a star, uh, one of the best players for the, for the gold medal winning team. So there's there's a really bright future. And like I said, he'll be back there next year and, and he'll be contending for MVP as far as I'm concerned. It, 
the conversation around the draft was that high powered line that he plays on with Smith and Leonard and Smith and Leonard were top 10 picks. So obviously as far as the prospect glow, they had more of it going into the draft, but now you're seeing what they're doing at BC as well. And I, I'm curious for your thoughts on this. Like how much do you think maybe one, you know, one or two of those guys benefit from the other? Like, is it a sense of maybe one guy is a little more above the other two and carries them a little bit? Or is there more of a sense that, Hey, on an individual basis, like these guys are all really legitimate prospects in their own right. I think the chemistry that they have together is really remarkable and that they all play off each other really, really well. And it's, it's like, you know, the old days of playing NHL, like 96, where you want to have, you want to have a playmaker, you want to have a shooter, you want to have a grinder on your line and and not to pigeonhole Ryan Leonard as a grinder, but you know, he, he's doing a lot of the heavy lifting, you know, he's, he's that more physical element and he gets into the corners and he can work hard and he can also drive play at North South. Um, Smith is kind of that dual shooter playmaker with those silky hands who, you know, can go completely invisible unless you're in the offensive zone, but he'll end up fine finding three or four points at the end of the night. And then pros that kind of jack of all trades playmaker for you. Um, so their chemistry as a unit is really unique. Um, I personally probably would have loved to see them go to different schools so that they could prove that they can mix and match well with other players. Um, you know, at BC there, when they were split up, they didn't produce as well. Granted, they're all 18-year-old freshmen and they're not supposed to just blow it out as soon as they step in the door. But there will probably be an adjustment period for all three of them when they move on to the professional ranks, whether that's next year or the year after. Um, I expect the year after for at least a couple of them um, that they're going to have to figure out how to play with other players. Um, but I don't think anyone's really doing the lion's share of the work there. I, I do think that Leonard is probably the best all around prospect and will have the easiest time transitioning to the professional ranks and the other two that I think there will be some, some hiccups along the way for Perot and Smith, but that's, you know, part and parcel, especially for Perot as, you know, kind of a late first rounder is that if he even turns into an NHL or that's a win. Um, if you can get yourself a, a legitimate top six winger at 23, then, uh, you know, that's a slam dunk. I mean, do you, do you see a, a clear path? I mean, do you feel any level of confidence that I'm sure some, but, you know, to, to say it's a, a slam dunk would be a stretch, I'm sure, with Perot as far as what he could turn into and, and what some of the biggest hurdles are. You mentioned the defense. You mentioned the skating. Are those kind of the biggest concerns? Like, like how do you see this potentially playing out for him? What, what do you think is the likely spot he could end up in? I think that there's a world where he could be a first line winger like that. That's his skill level and his, his intelligence are that high. And and I love to, to bet on an, a kid with a really big brain. Um, you know, he is undersized, right? He's, he's five ten, five eleven, and he weighs like a buck 60, buck 65. And so that is going to impact his ability to generate um, scoring chances at the NHL level, right? Just, just by de fact, he's going to be pushed to the outside. So he's going to need to work on that defensively. He's going to need to be able to keep his head above water, um, when faced against NHL level players and their size and their strength. Um, and then the feet, right? Like, so it's, those, those are those are three hurdles he does have to get over. He, he needs to get quicker. He needs to get stronger and he needs to get better defensively. If he can do those things, just by osmosis, his offensive game is going to get better too. If he's faster and he's stronger. So I think that there's a world where he could be a first line player. I think there's a world where he could be a really useful kind of second line playmaker who works on your second power play unit. And then, you know, there is that world where 
things don't break right for him and he kind of goes up and down between the HL and the NHL and just, you know, maybe ends up being a really, really good European player. Um, I'd like to bet on on maybe the, the middle of those those three outcomes um, as, you know, landing as a more of a top six, maybe middle six, really kind of shifty, sublime playmaker who maybe isn't going to be driving play on his own on, on, a, on a line. <clears throat> Excuse me. What do you make of Drew Fortescue? In in talking to people about him, the way that he was used with the development program, he was very much a, a guy that they went to in tough defensive situations. Not a lot of points there. I think the skill, a lot of people would feel like it, it is somewhat limited. But what's your read on him and his chances uh, of maybe one day making an NHL impact? Yeah, I thought he was fine, kind of in a more limited role. For the Americans, um, he didn't really stand out to me as doing too much of anything great. He, you know, his first pass was pretty good in the offensive zone. He he had a little bit of shake and bake. He made that bomb pass in the gold medal game to spring Isaac Howard. So that was that was fun and that was a nice play. So he he has that ability. I don't love his ability to prevent the entry against the rush. Um, he'll often either gap up a little too quickly and kind of get burned with speed wide or he'll give too much and he'll just kind of gift the blue line to the oncoming rushers so i, I think that that's something that he needs to work on um but you know he's what what was he a third rounder you yeah know, something yeah. like that yeah so you know there's there's room as an 18 year old the fact that he was playing on that world junior team i think that's that's just a feather in his cap right away you know, he's a part of that U18 team a couple of years ago as well. Or, uh, you know, he's he's not a point producer and he isn't at BC either. And I don't expect him to really ever be even at the professional level. But if he can become kind of that stable presence on the blue line, he needs to up kind of his physicality. He needs to guard that line against the rush a little bit better. But there's a there's a path for him to to end up being kind of that five, six, seven type of defender, I would say is, is a kind of a reasonable expectation and hope. Um, but again, as a third round pick, you know, there's a, there's a long way to go ahead of him here and he's got a few years of development left at BC and then he'll step into the American league. And so you're looking probably like four or five years out before he's pushing for a true NHL position. I, I had a scout tell me over the summer, you're, you're, you're maybe looking at a bottom pair guy who can be responsible defensively. And they feel like that's, you know, in that range of the draft, You'll take that if you can get it, if he ends up turning into that. The last guy I want to ask you about is Adam Sikora. Uh, we just talked about the two guys who played for Team USA. Sikora was the captain for Slovakia. And to me, he's a lot of fun to watch. He really is. And and I know the Rangers internally love him. They already have him with their AHL team in Hartford. I think he's only 19 years old at this point. So he's mm -hmm. one of the youngest players there. Obviously able to do that because he came from Europe, didn't come from juniors. But your, your feeling on Sikora, to me... The best quote I've heard on him was somebody called him a four-checking machine, and, and I feel like that's a pretty good description. But but what do you think about Sakura? Yeah, he's a kid that I've liked for a really long time. Um, I tend to do these these film rooms on draft eligible prospects, and then I watch way too much of their tape. I, I basically watch like nearly their whole season, and either I come out like hating the player at the end of it or loving them. And and Sakura is one of the guys that I really loved because. It's hard not to love his style of game. Like he is a four checking machine. He is hard on pox. He is hard on bodies. He gets to the net front. He bangs, he crashes, he scores dirty goals. Um, and he's not the biggest guy, right? Like he, he's another one who's, who's 5'10, 5'11, and 170, 75 pounds. But like he is unafraid of putting his body in the line to make a play. And so those type of players, it's 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 easy to root for them. Um, 
you know, like you said, he's, he's in the American league right now as a, you know, he stepped in as a freshly turned 19 year old. Like he's a late birthday too, I think because cause in his draft year, he was barely eligible for 22. Um, so at the event, you know, he didn't get a lot of opportunities to produce. Um, he scored that kind of late funny goal with like 0.1 seconds left on the board. Um, and, and then, you know, Slovakia just couldn't really get their feet under them a, a ton at this event, but um, he, he was good. Um, I liked his, you know, he carried the pocket of the zone really well. So even facing kind of downward pressure, he was able to, to maintain control and, and make plays through the neutral zone to help, you know, kind of jumpstart that offense. Um, defensively, he's, he's really strong positionally. Uh, he, he matches up well. Again, he uses that physicality and he, he's quick to pucks and he's quick with a stick. Um, yeah, he, he's he's involved in in basically all aspects in all three zones, and and he's he's a good player to bet that will make it. Um, another, I believe, third rounder, maybe second rounder, um, that has legitimate NHL upside, right? Like he's, I I ranked him as a clear second round pick, um, probably in the 30s or something like that. So where where the Rangers got him in the 60s, I think is is really good value for a really young player in his in his age bracket and uh, and one that could eventually be more of kind of that energy line guy. I don't I don't necessarily see top six upside but third fourth line minutes kill penalties get in on the four check and cause havoc um just hopefully he can put on enough meat that his body can withstand that style of play to, to me he feels like a winning player in your bottom six like he feels like the guy who could play some of those hard minutes do all the dirty work without complaining and and, and like you said provide a lot of energy for a team that's looking to eventually ha- have a bottom six that that does all of those kind of gritty elements yeah, exactly. And that's, like you said, like on a winning team, those are the type of players you want. And you want them homegrown too, right? You want them to be coming up through your developmental system so they know your team structure, they know the the systems in place, and they're usually cheaper. Um, and so that's that's how you build a winning lineup is is guys pushing up from below and stealing those kind of more depth spots that, that often teams will end up overpaying for in free agency or trade. Awesome, Camel. Thank you so much, man. I really do appreciate it. I know, I know, it's been crazy recently, but glad you're you're settling back in. And uh, hopefully, we'll talk again soon. Anything on the way out you want to mention as far as the World Juniors coverage or or anything else you want to plug? Well, you know, all our stuff at EP Ringside. You know, we're we're producing stuff daily. Um, we're really pushing the social media channels. I'm basically the face of TikTok at Elite Prospects. If anyone's keen on watching some fun videos over there, and uh, we're set up to do our next draft meeting here. So we'll have a, a new rankings out for the world to uh, to look at here in a couple weeks too. So check that out. Yeah, I'll probably be bugging you once we get into draft season, but we got we got a ways to go until then. So uh, enjoy it in the meantime, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Thanks, Alvin. Thanks again to Cam for coming on the show this week and really enjoyed that conversation. As you can tell, he's watched a lot of these prospects very closely, not just at the World Juniors, but scouting them in the lead up to their draft years as well. And I'm sure the most exciting one for many of you to hear about is Gabe Perot, who pretty much everybody that I've spoken to believes at least has a chance Now, it's impossible to say for sure or guarantee anything, especially with him still only being a freshman in college. But a lot of people believe he has a chance to be a real steal for the Rangers and ultimately be a guy who is capable of playing in their top six 
just because of you keep hearing everybody talk about that hockey IQ and the way that he sees the game and the plays that he's able to make and really the diversity of his overall offensive game because he's an elite passer. He's a guy who considered to have elite vision, elite hockey IQ. Also, a lot of people will tell you an underrated shot, a very capable scorer who, as Cam mentioned, you'd like to see use that shot a little bit more, but still had 50 plus goals last year with the development program. So has shown that he can score at a high rate. And then, as I mentioned, watching those world juniors and seeing him work those areas of the ice where, you know, the Rangers are going to want to see him get to in order to make an NHL impact. It seems like every prospect that they have, no matter how skilled they are on the perimeter, they want guys who will get inside. They want guys who will get to the net front. And I thought Perot really showed a willingness to do that in the world juniors. So an exciting prospect for them, for sure. Some question marks, no doubt. Still a lot of stuff that he has to prove. But this is the, I think, best prospect the Rangers have had since they drafted Alexi Lafreniere back in 2020. So an exciting thing for the Rangers, no doubt about it. And I know an exciting thing for a lot of you as well. So let's transition here and get to this week's set of questions because I have a countdown of less than an hour now until my car comes to pick me up and take me to the airport. And I still have to organize everything in my suitcase. So lots to do. And let's get right into it with our first question from Mike Bedio, who wrote, have the Rangers set a deadline on Heedle? Meaning, how long will they wait versus using LTIR salary soon? They can't wait any longer to get a third-line center as points slip away, then find out in April he's not returning. Plus, his high risk of reoccurrence. Can they legit wait for the playoffs, then reevaluate him? So, Mike, I do believe that there has to be some kind of a deadline for sure for Heedle. I think... The most likely time frame is going to be making a decision on what his future is as far as this season is concerned by late February. The trade deadline is March 8th. So the clock is certainly ticking on that, but it's still not at a point where you need to know for sure today. And as I wrote in the midseason report, I believe and I've heard that the Rangers are sort of forming a loose two-pronged plan right now. There is one direction and set of targets that they will pursue. And and the target list, you know, I see a lot of questions in here about the target list. That is still all coming together right now. At this stage, I think they're monitoring pretty much every team. And they probably have a guy or two on every single team they might be interested if they come available. The question at this stage is, is who exactly is available because it's very hard to know outside of a few teams who are sitting at the bottom of the standings and have sent out early signals that they're going to be sellers. And even those teams probably aren't in a position quite yet where they're ready to pull the trigger on some of those deals. But a lot of those teams that are sort of in that middle ground right now, vying for playoff spots just into the playoffs or just outside of the playoff picture, it's going to be a little while before those GMs are ready to say, okay, we're willing to make a deal. We're willing to sell off parts. So as far as the trade targets, I, I had published that list a couple weeks ago of initial targets. Those would be a lot of the same names I would probably throw at you today. But as far as this two-pronged plan that I'm talking about, I believe that there's one where if Hedl can't come back and the Rangers have that LTIR pool money, which would give them an initial about $4.4 million to work with at the trade deadline, 
then you might see them go more big game hunting. Then you might see a guy like Elias Lindholm or one of the top available centers in the marketplace as long as they fall within that four and a half, five million dollar salary range for the Rangers. You will definitely, I think, see the Rangers be aggressive in the pursuit of a center who can fill that void on the third line. If Hedl is able to come back, then of course the, ch- the plans change, mostly because of the amount of salary cap space that they'll have. And this is an interesting point that I wanted to make on this week's episode because I also saw that there were at least one question about how much salary cap space the Rangers would have if Hedl does come back. And the answer, because we have a little more clarity on it now that Capo Caco has been reinstated on the roster. The Rangers right now are sitting about $80,000 over the cap. So they are dipping into the LTIR pool money right now, just barely. If Hedl were to come back, that would mean you're also then going to send somebody down. Let's, for argument's sake, say that it would be Johnny Brodzinski, who makes $760,000. So that would leave the Rangers in that situation if you take away that 760000 on top of knowing that they're about 80000 over right now, that would leave them just short of $700,000 in available cap space on the day that Hedl is activated. Now, in the days that follow, the Rangers, because they wouldn't be using LTIR anymore, would be able to accrue little bits of additional cap space each day. So if Hedl were to return for argument's sake, let's say tomorrow. Now he's not going to, but if he were, that would give the Rangers a month and a half of accrual time, in which case they could probably turn that $700,000 in cap space to well over a million, maybe a million and a half. I, I haven't done that exact math because I'm not expecting him to be back tomorrow. But just to give you that example, that would give them some ample time to accrue. And then they would reach well over a million dollars, I think, maybe a million and a half or so as a rough estimate for what they would have by the time the trade deadline rolls around. But if Hedl comes back, let's say mid to late February, well, then that's far fewer days to accrue. And then the Rangers are probably looking at more like a million dollars in available cap space. So the range there is pretty limited. Essentially, you got to figure that number is going to land somewhere between 700 and about a million and a half in available cap space, depending on how many days they have to accrue, depending on how soon Hedl would be activated. So that limits you. But then you also would consider this, that when you go out and make a trade, let's say you add a forward, that means you're probably subtracting another forward off the roster. So let's say it's somebody who makes another $800,000, let's say a Tyler Pitlick for argument's sake. Well, then if the Rangers had about a million dollars at the ca- at the trade deadline, on top of then sending somebody like Pitlick down or putting them on waivers, really that's like 1.8 or so. So you figure that by the time they were to get to the deadline, if their range was a million dollars or so, maybe at most a million and a half in available cap space, plus being able to waive an extra forward to make room for whoever you bring in, you could maybe approach $2 million in the actual salary that you would be able to absorb. Maybe one and a half, 1.6, 1.7, 1.8, something like that. So that is the loose range of possibilities here. But basically, 
whoever the Rangers add, you're figuring is going to have to make less than $2 million, whether their actual salary is that or whether you convince the team that you're trading with to retain 50% of the salary, then maybe you could get a guy who makes three and a half, four million million and get that other team to retain half and you're only getting charged with a million and a half or two million. So that's basically what they would be looking at if Hedl comes back. Again, it depends how many days they have to accrue, but I think you're looking at when it's all told, they could probably take on a million and a half to two million dollars in salary with the maneuvers of also waiving another player at the same time. So that that's basically where they sit. When they will know for sure about which direction they're going in, Heedle is a player for them this regular season or he's not, I think there's still going to be some time before we have that answer. But the clock is ticking. And basically to answer Mike's question, I think they need that decision by late February. So that's something to keep in mind. But I did want to break down that salary cap stuff for you guys a little bit just to give you a clearer picture. I want to emphasize this as much as possible so that when you're sending me your trade scenarios, and I've seen a lot of them, a few, few people were asking about Trevor Zegers this week. I have to tell you, that's one I do not see happening because we've talked about the defensive concerns. We've talked about cutting down on the turnovers and the risk taking and wanting guys who are going to play a little more of a straight ahead style. Obviously, they want guys who contribute offensively, but they also want to be defensively sound and especially clean up their rush defense. Zegers does not strike me as that kind of player. So that's a name I think would be a very long shot for them to actually consider. I think some of the other guys, whether it's a Lindholm, whether it's a Sean Moynihan, whether it's a Tommy Novak, or even though the speed element wouldn't be there in Adam Henrique, some centers along those lines, I think are more of what I would think of than a guy who's a big risk taker, who is definitely going to add to those turnovers that fuel the rush going the other way, like a Zegris. I, I don't sense that's the type of player the Rangers are targeting. That's that, that's one I, I can touch on a little bit just because I saw a few people ask about him. But the main point being the Heedle decision will be a huge one. And if he does return, then that amount of cap space that you're looking at is going to be limited. But you could find a usable player, a decent depth piece, I think, if you end up having between a million and $2 million when it's all said and done to add to the roster at the deadline. All right, let's get to our next question, which comes from Greg Venuto, who wrote, any concerns about Keandre Miller? One assist and a minus three rating over his last 10 games. Yeah, Greg, I was talking with somebody about this the other day. During that rough patch the Rangers were having now, the forwards were certainly having some issues with some of those neutral zone turnovers that were fueling the rush going the other way, some bad back checking that we saw, some forechecking that was a little too touch and go for my taste, and some questionable line changes. There were certainly a lot of things I think the forwards were doing that were contributing to those defensive struggles. But when you're looking at the defensemen, Miller certainly during that four-game losing streak was, I think, one of the guys who was struggling the most. He had a couple rough games in there certainly has not had the puck on his stick a lot you have not seen him attacking off the rush and using those long strides and using that skill in transition that when he's at the top of his game and playing with a lot of confidence you see him doing it just felt like I haven't noticed him a whole lot pushing 
offensively, which you've always kind of felt like that's the next step for this guy. And then on the other end, defensively, he's had some of those turnovers. He's fumbled some of those breakout opportunities. He's been out of position on certain defensive situations for the Rangers. So yeah, Miller's a guy who I feel like has been in a little bit of a rut. And we've heard him talk about not being satisfied with his season. It just felt like each of the last two years, my own sense from watching him and especially training camp settings where he looked really good in training camp this year and also talking to people around the team and around the league and scouts and things of that nature, everybody has felt like the ceiling for this guy is super high and he could be on the verge of a breakout. It just hasn't materialized yet. And I still believe in the potential of the player. I still believe that he's a guy who has the right work ethic, who has the right mindset, who strives to be really good and has all the physical attributes to be a really good player. But it just hasn't completely clicked yet. And the whole team has been struggling in a lot of ways in recent weeks, so I don't want to just make it about him. But he has been a guy who has been out there for some pretty glaring mistakes defensively and I think hasn't had much of an impact at all offensively. So definitely a guy who I'd like to talk to him. I might try to do that on the road at some point and just pick his brain a little bit more about where he feels like he's at. We know he had that little stretch where he missed a little time for personal reasons. So you certainly hope that everything from a life standpoint, from a personal standpoint is okay with him. And there's nothing maybe in the back of his mind during any of the stretch. I don't want to speculate on that at all, but you just feel like what he's been doing on the ice is not the Keandre Miller that we're used to seeing and certainly has not approached that breakout potential that we've been talking about a lot with him in the last couple of years. There's definitely another gear or two for him to get to. And recently it feels like he's been struggling. So that that's definitely something to keep an eye on. I do feel like this has not been a great stretch for him for the last couple of weeks, but especially, as you mentioned, really these last 10 games or so. All right, let's get to our final question of the week, which comes from Dan, who wrote, Vince, any must-dos at T-Mobile Arena, which is the home of the Vegas Golden Knights? I'm flying out tomorrow morning for the game. Well, Dan, if you see me there, please come over and say hello. I'll tell you, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. My favorite arena experience in the league is Montreal, no doubt about it. But Vegas for me is probably top three. It's amazing the show that they put on at those games. And it's even more impressive to me that a town like Vegas, which I think nobody would confuse, especially before the team got there as a hockey town. It's it's the desert. There's not a whole lot of ice out there. And it's not something that I think a lot of people felt like was a hotbed there before the team got there. But the way that that community has embraced the team, the way that they fill out that arena every game, the way that they're engaged and loud, it just feels like a really intense, fun atmosphere. I remember Alex Georgiev a few years ago saying, it feels like you're playing in a nightclub because they got the DJ going and they got a lot of different things going. But it's not where I think it overshadows the game or takes away from the game. There's just a really fun atmosphere before the game. They have like the medieval times thing where the Knights guys come out and skate and have this whole show that they put on before the players even take the ice. And that's fun. That certainly gets the crowd involved. But 
The arena is really nice, obviously relatively new, and it's just a really good, engaged, loud, proud crowd. And obviously it helps that the team has been really good, the defending Stanley Cup champions. But so for me, definitely one of the coolest arena experiences in the league. And Vegas is a town where I feel like some people love it, some people hate it. So that all depends what kind of stuff you're looking to do. Obviously, if you're interested in the casinos and the gambling and the nightlife, there's a lot of options for you in Las Vegas. And there's a lot of really good restaurants. There's like four or five on my list that I would really like to get to while I'm there this time around. I obviously don't think I'm going to be able to. A couple I could throw out to you. A restaurant I believe I'm going to with a couple other writers on Wednesday night is called Best Friend in the Park MGM. Really, really good Asian Chinese kind of food for you there. China Poblano is a place in the Cosmo that has its sort of Mexican-Asian fusion. That place really impressed me last season. A few good steakhouses, actually probably several good steakhouses in Vegas. So if you want to get yourself a good steak dinner, that is a good town to do it for sure. It's a fun town. Now, I'm not a huge gambler. It would have been fun, I think, to be there while the NFL playoff games are going on. Unfortunately, we're only there Wednesday to Friday morning. So I would have enjoyed being there and watching some playoffs. Maybe then I would have placed a wager or two. But it's got a ton of energy. It's a cool town to be in. And I'm guessing, Dan, since you chose to go there, that you are a Vegas type of guy. So enjoy the trip. Stay safe. Uh, don't do anything I wouldn't do. I'll, I'll tell you guys maybe one day about the trip me and three of my best friends took to Vegas the summer. We turned 21. We thought we were big shots and uh, maybe bit off a little more than we could chew. But that was definitely a good memory that I still look back on finally. But yeah, as far as cities to travel to, especially if you're into all the other stuff that Vegas brings, I would highly recommend it as a place to go and catch a game. All right. With that, we are going to end this week's episode so I can go finish packing my suitcase. Thanks again to Cam Robinson for coming on the show this week. Thanks again to all of you for submitting your questions and for listening. A quick disclaimer for next week. The trip ends Tuesday night in San Jose, and I'm flying back on Wednesday. And the crappy part about coming back from the West Coast is that you lose those hours on the trip back. I have an early morning flight, and I don't think I'm even going to walk into my door at home back in New York until probably like seven o'clock at night. So I don't think I'm going to be able to record next Wednesday. I might have to wait until Thursday to record, in which case next week's episode would be a Friday morning release, but I will keep you guys posted for sure on the plans with that. Also got a fun guest, I think, in my back pocket for next week. So that's something to keep an eye on as well. Until then, I will check in with you guys from the West Coast. We'll have tons of coverage and fresh stories and all kinds of stuff coming your way from that four-game trip. I will certainly do my best to enjoy myself, as I always do, and I will talk to you all next week.